Amen. It's, um, it has been said that it is <clears throat> at the Word of God where we discover who God is and who we are. And therefore, to neglect the Scriptures, the Bible, uh, is to not know God and to also not know yourself. And so it is a good, simple refrain to know that uh, God is a good Father and we are those who are loved by Him. I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer and join me in the gospel according to Mark. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. I'd love for you to follow along. We are not going to listen to the words today of uh, a man so much as we are going to consider uh, the ancient words inspired by the Spirit of God. We'll pick up this morning when we left off last week, having begun Mark's gospel. We'll read today from verse 1 to verse 8. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the gospel. Um, it's not just good news. It's a word evangelion, from which we get the word evangelical. Uh, but it was a common word. It's not unique to the Bible or to to Christians, even though we seem to be the only ones who use it. Evangelion uh, was simply a, a way of making a, an announcement. An announcement in the Greek world using that word. I come bearing news. In fact, they would most likely often use it in the plural form. I come bearing the news plural. Mark begins his gospel saying, uh, the beginning of not the news plural, but of the only news, the singular news, Jesus Christ, which is to say Jesus, the anointed one, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, John appeared, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the hill country, right, all of the people of the region, of Judea, and all of the capital city of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You could eat locusts raw. You just remove the legs and the wings. Or you could um, roast them. Um, you could also dry them and then ground them up and mix them into your uh, flour and bake them into bread. And you have protein-enriched bread. I'm just saying. It's not a fairy tale. It's, lo it's what he ate, locusts. They were out in the wilderness. They were plentiful. And wild honey, same thing. It's everywhere. Everywhere there are, there are bees. 
And he preached, verse 7, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once more we come to you in prayer, and we ask now not that you would receive our our praises or phrases of adoration, uh, but that now you would speak to us. Uh, that by the, by the careful observation and teaching of your scriptures, uh, that your very voice would be heard. And that as the word promises in Hebrews, that you would, you would cut us to the heart. And in doing so, you wouldn't leave us wounded, but that in fact, the word that cuts is also the word that heals. And that by our being cut to the heart, convicted of our sin and our need, uh, that you would also make us whole. For apart from you, we are desperately broken. To say we are incomplete is an understatement. And so, by your word, would you make us whole and make us new? In Christ's name, I ask. Amen. You may be seated. I'm loving this, by the way. Look at here. Ah. Vanished. Mark begins his account, his announcement, his news, a long way back. You, you think about the other accounts of Jesus' life. You know, John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So you think, okay, John's starting way, way, way back to the, the beginning. You know, Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham. Mark begins his gospel a long way back too. The story doesn't start with Jesus' birth, nor with Abraham or David. The story doesn't even start with the inception of the material universe. It seems he starts with John, but it's not John. The story begins, listen, with the dreams of the prophets long ago which is to say the story begins long ago in the mind of God who chose to inspire the prophets who would foretell of the coming of John who would prepare the way for Jesus mind of God prophets John Jesus that's how Mark begins his story the Stoics were strong believers in what they called the ordered plan of God. Marcus Aurelius said, The things of God are full of foresight. All things flow from heaven. And that's the idea behind John, Mark's gospel. 
It's with the concept of that heavenly foresight that Mark introduces his readers to Jesus the Messiah. Not as a baby born and laid in the manger, not as a descendant of the ancient and great King David. No. Jesus is presented as the manifestation of the imagination of the eternal Godhead. He is the Son of God, co-eternal, co-equal, and he is, by the word beginning, ushering in a new era of history that will ultimately encompass all of creation as Jesus rules and reigns as king of the universe for all time. And so it is from a high vantage point that Mark sets the stage by introducing his readers to a man named John who fulfills ancient prophecy. Again, prophecy birthed out of the mind of God in what is called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. I imagine about half of you have probably heard of or understand the covenant of redemption. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a higher percentage. I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence nor speak over anyone's head. So let me give a snapshot of what it is, this covenant of redemption. God decided in eternity past among the unified members of the Godhead, that is the triune God, to create and redeem a wayward humanity. The Son agreed with the Father, that's the covenant, to his subservient role. He was to inhabit the flesh of humanity, identify with us in our weakness, and yet earn for us the right to be at peace with God. He would pay the price to purchase us back Listen, from the clutches of Satan, to whom we had forfeited our souls in the rebellion known as the fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, that is as simply as I can summarize the covenant of redemption. There are volumes written to explain it. But that's the idea. We have to imagine that before God said, let there be light, if we can assign, which we can't, but if we could assign to God a timetable, he exists outside of time. But in our best human thinking, we might assign to him a timetable, an order of events. First, the covenant of redemption Second, the creation. Third, the fulfillment. In that order. That's the covenant of redemption in a nutshell. Agreed upon by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the world was made. This was God's plan because he is a God of love, mercy, and grace. But he is also holy. It is the only attribute listed in the the three times over emphasis 
holy, holy, holy. And that means he is not the same as. Superior to, different from, separated from. Holy. And so in order to uphold his holiness, while also being loving and forgiving, the price for man's rebellion against God would have to be paid. And so, the world is created, man rebels, God reveals himself first through creation, and then personal or specifically into the nation of Israel, giving his law, his manifestation, and then personally through the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. God reveals himself. And this is how the Spirit inspired Mark to tell us the story of that plan of redemption unfolding. Long laid plans are unfolding. So that there could be no doubt, God had Isaiah and Malachi write down a description of the man who would come and prepare the way for the arrival of the King of Kings. That's what we read in verse 2 and 3. Isaiah and Malachi, as it is written, the more prominent prophet is listed while the secondary one is uh, left out in the quotation. It's very common in ancient literature. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So first there'll be a messenger. He will prepare the way. And here's this description of him. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so we read verse 4, John appeared baptizing where? In the wilderness. And what was he saying? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Let us consider then, this morning, John's multifaceted role in, again, the plans of God from eternity past unfolding, taking shape. Advancing, if you will. Three roles. He is first a messenger, which is to say he's a, he's a preacher. He is a proclaimer. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and what? Proclaiming, preaching, heralding. And what is his message? He's preaching a baptism of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. But that's all spiritual like Christian buzzwords. What's that all about? What's, he's proclaiming the baptism of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. And, and we all just, it's like, it's like a word salad, right? Just like a, 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 a bunch of Christian words all put together in one phrase that almost mean nothing because they mean everything and they're just rattled off. What is this word salad of baptism of repentance, forgiveness of sins? The answer is that his message is all about judgment. doesn't seem like it on its face, but it is. John was a judgment preacher. Like many of the prophets of the Old Testament, him being, if you will, the last Old Testament prophet. Joel prophesied that a plague of locusts was God's hand of judgment. Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would be judged overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Of course, the history books tell that story. Amos prophesied that a famine 
of God's word would come on the land of Israel. A judgment. Not a famine from food, but a famine from the word of God. And so too, Amos' words came to pass. There is what is called the intertestamental period. You ever heard of that? Between the, the last words recorded by the last prophet and the first words recorded by John the Baptist, there's several hundred years, something like 400 years. It's called the 400 years of silence, a famine of the word of God. And Amos prophesied it. Judgment, judgment, judgment. The list goes on and on. I won't bother to list all the prophets who pronounced judgment on either the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdoms of Israel. We'd be here all morning. I'd have a lot of fun, but you'd fall asleep, you know? And now John appears prophesying, speaking the words of God, saying the king of Israel is coming. The king is coming. And here is his message. Ready? Remember the word salad? Here's the message. You are not worthy to be part of his kingdom. That's the message. The king is coming and you are not worthy to be part of it. He will arrive and you will find yourself on the outside looking in. Why? Because of your sin. And so he came, what did he do? Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew's account, the uh, message of John is expanded, speaking to the most religious of the religious. John calls them a bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. It's never a compliment. You'll never be complimented if someone says that you remind them of a snake. In case you're wondering, you can just put this one in your back pocket. My preacher said it's never a compliment. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise or to, to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. You're saying just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, the, the modern evangelical message is not different. Just because you sit in a church building every now and then doesn't mean anything. You're descended from Abraham? Congratulations. You prayed a, a hocus-pocus prayer when you were eight years old one time? Big whoop. These external things mean nothing. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The tree is, of course, the people, the people of God. Who stand on their claims of Abrahamic covenant relationship, but they're dead trees bearing no fruit, no life. There's no purity. There's no repentance. There's no holiness. There's no love for God and his word. 
There's no conviction for sin and selfishness and selfish ambition. You're just, you're just, you're dead. And the king is coming. And he's laying the axe at the base of the tree, ready to chop it down. You see the message? Judgment, friends. You're not worthy to be part of his kingdom. The king is coming. You're going to be on the outside looking in. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we go, oh, that sounds nice. And with fire. Oh, that doesn't sound so good. (laughs) So which is it? Do we want that baptism or not? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is a judgment preacher. He's preaching judgment. This was no nice sermon. This was a piercing confrontation, calling on the people of Israel to be, listen, honest with themselves about their spiritual condition. They were sinful, selfish people, and like you and I, friend, unworthy to be greeted peacefully by the king of creation who is on his way. John's message was meant to address their greatest need in anticipation of Jesus' arrival. They needed to be forgiven of their sin. And friends, it's our greatest need as well. We need to be forgiven of our sin. You could say, well, I, you know, struggling with this or my job situation or my home situation or I've made some poor decisions and now this is coming, now I'm here and now eh. those things are real. And they, and they create pressure and they create stress in your life and in your world. But friend, they are nothing compared to your greatest need. Be forgiven of your sin. The king is coming and we're not worthy to be greeted peacefully by him. like footsteps he's coming right you hear him that's the idea Jesus is coming and he'll he'll find you sinful and cast you into the fire only the foolhardy claims otherwise that to say We have no sin as to lie. Listen to 1 John. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, of course, it's all metaphoric language, right? If we say we have fellowship with God, we're good. Me and God are good. This is what I heard someone say in an interview recently. Me and God are good. We'll see how it turns out. Hey, listen. I respect Everyone's right to work these things out intellectually. Uh, and we need to do so. None of us should be, you know, forced across some kind of line of faith, you know, where our, our, our hand is being held behind our back like the, like the police, you know, when they're trying to subdue someone and, and, just, and just wedged across the line. Say the prayer. Repent of your sins, you punk. You know, like... We need to work these things out. But friends, there is a desperation in this. 
me and God are good. We'll see how it turns out. You going to roll the dice on your eternity? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive us. What was he proclaiming? A baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him by him in the river Jordan. And what were they doing? Confessing their sin. It's always been part of the equation. If you confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar because God said, you have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, I haven't, so God's a liar? That's a pretty bold statement. This was John's message, and the account tells us that all of Judea, Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. Obviously, it was hyperbolic language, but it was a raucous upheaval of cultural norms. Now, there are a few things that we might appreciate about John's message before we move on to his second, the second, if you will, facet of his role. Number one, perhaps the church's message today is so often ineffective because it lacks the boldness and straightforwardness of John the baptizer. Jesus is coming. You're not worthy to be part of his kingdom. Repent, confess, be baptized. Perhaps we've become too interested in the approval of the rest of the world such that we are hesitant to confront the sin of the world. And thus the message and the power behind it are watered down. Maybe. Or maybe the message is offered boldly. Preachers like this one standing behind pulpits like this one, maybe not this beautiful, but pulpits like this one, this was a wonderful gift. For those of you who don't know this, this week the elders presented this to me. It's a replica of, uh, of the one that is uh, that my favorite pastor stands behind each week. I'm grateful for it. I like it. It's big. No, but perhaps the message is offered boldly, but not lovingly. I mean, I, I can be guilty of this. Your own pastor can be guilty of this. Fervent desperate even, to, to almost want to grab people by the shoulders and shake them out of their stupor, but in doing so, leave the love that accompanied the message, you know, maybe in my office, and I come here without it. Maybe we've come from a place of condemnation instead of confrontation. One is good, one is helpful, one is right, one is not. Perhaps in our hypocrisy, we have stated the need that men and women need to repent of their sins while we indulge those same sins. And thus the message and the power behind it are watered down. I don't know, friends, but certain things can be assumed about John and his message. Three things. Number one, he practiced what he preached Number two, he preached with boldness. And number three, people were drawn to him, not repulsed by him. 
And he had no marketing campaign, just a bold confrontational message that Jesus is coming. And people were drawn to him. They went out to him and responded to his message, not because it was easy to hear or digest, not because it was practical for their everyday life at work or at home, but because it was true and it was offered from a place of pure, unadulterated motive. That's a good model. Let our message be true. That means whole, complete, but offered from a place of pure, unadulterated motive. That's a good model for us to follow as John, the messenger, shows to us. And so while his message was confrontational, it was also holistic. He confronted sinfulness, but he also offered grace and forgiveness to the penitent. And it was, it was the complete gospel message. It began with confronting sin. It extended forgiveness. It called for obedience as a way of life after. There is no such thing as a gospel of repentance that doesn't also then be followed up with obedience to Jesus. And then it directs all focus to Jesus. Look at verse 7. He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Straps I'm not worthy to untie. Right? The focus was always on Jesus. That's a solid, complete four pieces of the gospel message. Confront sin, offer forgiveness, require obedience as a result, and always point to Jesus. But again, friends, as we move on to number two, his message was clear. You are not worthy of the presence of the coming king. When he arrives, he will separate sinful from pure. So make yourselves ready by confessing your sins, repenting, and being baptized as an outward ceremonial symbol of your inward change of mind. This lends itself to John's second role then. He is the forerunner. The forerunner. You'll see it here. Look, see, told you. The job of the forerunner is to prepare the way. Look at verse 2 again. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He was to make ready the path. Now, in the ancient world, this is fascinating, the envoy of the arriving king would always go before him to remove obstacles along the decided pathway. This was perfectly reasonable, as the king would typically travel with a large entourage, perhaps a small army that would guard him, all the provisions necessary for this large company of people to make the journey from his palace to his destination. There would likely be animals, instrumentalists, gifts that would come along. And so you imagine this large company of people, the king, if you will, at its center. If for some reason that envoy was stopped because a bridge was broken... The whole company would be stuck for days or weeks until that bridge is repaired and they can continue on in their journey. Well, that's not good use of the king's time. And it would also earn his displeasure. What do you mean there's a broken bridge? Why are we stopped? Well, Steve was on vacation last week. So he forgot to go ahead of you and he didn't recognized there'd be a bridge. He assumed the bridge was fine. I mean, you know, 
and so Steve would earn the king's displeasure. I told him to make my path straight. Here we are. Now we're stuck. Now we're vulnerable. Do you get the picture? It would earn the king's displeasure. It would waste the king's time. It would stop the whole company from advancing forward. So, in typical practice, months in advance, a preparation team would make the long journey ahead on the decided route. They would mark and correct all the places along that route that needed to be widened due to overgrowth or filled due to potholes, fixing bridges, widening roads, straightening the lane in order to facilitate the king's arrival. Now, one extreme example of this in more recent history is that of Rom- Romanian dictator Nicolae, I want to say his last name right if I can, Ceausescu, I think that's right. Do you guys know about Ceausescu? He would have the leaves of the trees and bushes painted green along the route before he would make his way to a village because he likes things to be green and pretty. I don't know. (laughs) How bonkers is that? But that's real. That's history, man. But here's the point. There is nothing odd about Jesus' arrival being preceded by a forerunner. In fact, for a king to arrive without it would be most strange indeed. But Jesus' forerunner wasn't demanding or petty, like Ceausescu. He wasn't preparing for an elaborate and pretentious envoy meant to boost the king's ego and bolster his public image. Rather, Jesus' forerunner was a heart preparer, preparing the hearts and minds of the people with a call to repent from their sin. The sin that the coming king would later go on to pay for with his life. John's preparation as the forerunner was to confront the people. You're not ready. You are sinful and he is pure. And unless you want to find yourself on the outside of the new kingdom, repent, ask for forgiveness, be washed, be made new, renounce your former way of life. You have been warned, the king is coming. And the message is the same today. I mean, fast forward 2,000 years. He has come in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation of God himself, and he is coming again. He will return. Things will not go on as they are forever. He will punish the wicked and he will rescue the penitent. He's coming. The question from the modern-day preacher is the same as the question of John the Baptist. The king is coming. Are you ready? So he is a messenger, a preacher. He is a forerunner. He goes before. He makes the path straight. It's a great picture. And then thirdly, he's a baptizer. John the baptizer. He's not the first Baptist this would be, the, this would be the, the church of the patron saint of John the baptizer. No, he, he's not the first Baptist. He was a baptizer. That's the actual language in the original text. That's what he did. 
but he was calling for Jews to wash themselves. Now, this is interesting, and you have to know a little bit of Jewish law to appreciate how this message would have rang in the ears, rang, rung, would have rung in the ears of the Jews hearing John's message. Ready? While the ceremonial law of God outlined in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, while that required washing, it prescribed it, Jews would not immerse themselves in water very often. And that's what John was calling for. Come be immersed. The only time that you would immerse yourself in water is the most extreme of cases. Most notably, to be cleansed from leprosy or to be converted from pagan idolatry into Judaism. Listen to this from a Jewish commentary on the significance of baptism completely divorced from evangelical Christianity. Submerging in a pool of water for the purpose not of using the water's cleansing physical properties, but is expressly to symbolize a change of soul. That is a statement at once deeply spiritual and immensely compelling. No other symbolic act can, listen, so totally embrace a person as being submerged in water, which must touch and cover every lesion, every strand of hair, every birthmark. No other religious act is so freighted, that's like weight, so freighted with meaning as this one, which touches every aspect of life and proclaims a total commitment to a new idea and a new way of life as it swallows up the old and gives birth to the new. Again, friends, this is not a Christian view of baptism. This is a Jewish view of baptism. That, that is what would have been on the minds of the Jews who heard John's message. No religious act was as significant as to symbolize rebirth, renewal, complete turning, converting as baptism. And so therefore, what John was asking his Jewish brothers to do was crystal clear. He was saying, acknowledge your state as being as poor, as depraved, as helpless, as though you were eaten up with leprosy, or as separated from God as Gentiles. Such that nothing but the holistic representation of rebirth and renewal will suffice. That's, that's a strong message ringing in the ear of a Jew. The forerunner of Jesus was asking people to consider yourself to be as good as dead, 
as far from ready to meet King Jesus as possible. Make ready for the king by being honest with yourself about your spiritual condition. John was compelling Jews to say, I'm no better off than a Gentile. I'm as doomed as a leper. Gentile, that is, as the biblical authors define it, simply just a not Jew. Just someone who's not Jewish. Those who are not in covenant relationship with God. And so in the Jewish mind, they have no part in God's kingdom, no share in his promises and blessings. They are as far from God as humanly possible. Then here comes John saying, not they, you. You are as far from God as humanly possible. You are as far from enjoying the blessing and favor of the new king as is humanly possible. For the Jew to admit his standing as no more favorable than a Gentile is a massive statement. What do you mean be converted to Judaism? I'm a Jew. No, you're not. You're no better off than a Gentile. You're as far from God as possible. It's probably worse that you think you're okay. Because that's just one more roadblock in your way, in the way of being honest with yourself about your spiritual condition. And so what must they do? Well, they must metanoia. That's the Greek word for repent. He was baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Metanoia means to turn. From the root word that means mind. To turn your mind. To make up your mind to walk, think, live in an entirely new direction. And for this reason... Luke records John saying, bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Why? Because if your mind has turned, where you go next will look different than where you were before. This is the message of John. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are being called to have in mind our spiritual state. Our sin makes us not ready for the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom. The promise then of John's baptism was to make them ready for what Jesus would then offer newness of life. Newness of life. John could only facilitate the symbol of rebirth and regeneration. What Jesus would come and do is to wash them from the inside out. And this is why Jesus said, I am the living water. You see, ceremonial washing in Jewish tradition had degrees of preference, okay? A basin of water pulled out and set aside to, to wash hands in, in ceremonial ritual fashion, that was fine, but fresh rainwater that collected in like a cistern or just like a, 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 a shallow pool in the rocks, that's better than a basin that's pulled aside because it's, it's fresh. But a lake that is fed by a stream 
that's even better because, you know, a pool, a cistern, a rock with a, a, a depression in it that collects rainwater, that can grow stagnant. But at least a lake has fresh water flowing into it always. So that's preferred over the cistern, which is preferred over the basin. But there's, there's one type of water that's the best. If you're going to do a ceremonial washing, there's, there's a preferred type of water And the best way to refer to it is living water, meaning it's never sitting still, it's not in a basin, it's not in a rock, it's not even in a lake being fed by a river. No, it is a river itself, constantly being refreshed, constantly being renewed, never sitting stagnant. That's the living water, the preferred method of ritual cleansing. And so, John appears in the wilderness, baptizing them, where? In the River Jordan. The Jordan River, not in the Sea of Galilee, not in the Dead Sea, not in a baptismal, but in the living water. And then Jesus later comes along and says, I am the living water. He who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, among the many layers of Jesus' expert teaching, he was saying that he is what John preached him to be. In Jesus, the very soul is cleansed. The eternal, invisible state of the man is renewed. We baptize with water to symbolize that spiritual renewal, but it's Jesus who will immerse your soul in his living water, making you completely new from the inside out. A whole new man, cleansed and whole. A whole new woman, pure and precious. A whole new person, free from sin's power and from sin's penalty. This is how Mark sets the stage for the story of Jesus. What a message. One that needs to resonate in many of our ears to the point of personal metanoia turning. Honest self-assessment of our spiritual condition. And then, Christian, that message, that holistic message is what needs to be on our lips when we leave this place. And we walk out into a dark and broken world eaten up by sin, ravaged by war. But the greatest need, of course, is the forgiveness of sins. Oh, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word and your message.
from the message that John the Baptist would proclaim in anticipation of the arrival of the king. May we, like those Jews in first century Israel who heard that message, may we also take honest stock of our spiritual condition such that we hear that we are broken, that we repent and be made ready for your arrival. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing one final song, friends.